bum bum bottom 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 bum
Thank you, my love. It's super cool. So if you have not gone over to the Adventures in Poor Taste website, please do so. Read that article. Also check out our previous one we did for them, uh, Scott Summers and Jean Grey and the Five Love Languages. And once you've absorbed fully all of our content, there's probably other content on that website. Yes, 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 for sure. There absolutely is. It's a great website. But you should also tweet at them and say, hey, we want more comic book couples counseling podcast content on your page. Ooh, (laughs) I like that. I love that site. I love writing for them. It's really cool. Same, same. So all good things must come to an end. And this week, we're closing out our conversation on Peter and MJ with the Redheaded Stranger story arc from the Amazing Spider-Man issues numbers 602 through 605. As we saw at the end of One More Day, Mephisto's magical shenanigans not only retconned Peter and MJ's wedding, but also resurrected characters like Harry Osborn and Flash Thompson, returned Spider-Man's web shooter devices to his attire, and restored his secret identity. Uh, The immediate post-One More Day 2008 storyline was entitled Brand New Day and comprises of 102 issues of The Amazing Spider-Man, which Marvel made the sole Spidey book, disbanding titles like Spectacular Spider-Man, Sensational Spider-Man, and Friendly Neighborhood Spider-Man. This was the first time since December of 1976 that only one Spidey title existed on the market. And how long did that era of one Spidey title last? 102 issues. Long time. That is crazy. Yes, yes. On top of that craziness, that madness, Marvel was publishing Amazing Spider-Man three times a month during this time period, meaning multiple writers and artists had to jump on to keep that train running. While I don't mind weekly publishing when it is planned far in advance and consistent with one writer and one artist, a la what we're seeing right now in House of X and Powers of Ten, I hate, hate, hate the jumbled sensation of rotating teams on weekly titles. I never messed with Brand New Day because of this reason. Yeah, I'm kind of of the same ilk where I, like, if there are inconsistencies in the storyline that will distract me from enjoying the character that I love. Yeah, and even if they do a great job of uh, staying linear with one Peter Parker, you know, like this is his narrative of what's going on right now, there's always, you know, those tiny little aberrations, inconsistencies to use your word, within the dialogue and especially with the art. Like when arts are changing so frequently it drives it's me jarring bad. it's jarring sadly that is also part of the comic book experience these are monthly books and you got to crank them out but on a weekly basis it's nuts mm-hmm. redheaded stranger was published in october of 2009 about a year after the launch of brand new day and it is the first storyline to significantly address the relationship of peter and mary jane after their magical breakup at the hands of mephisto and as such it's an interesting curiosity and a, a fascinating place to end our conversation on this couple. There's not a ton of MJ in this book. But what's there? I, I think that the conclusion she comes to at the end of this particular volume is so satisfying. Yeah, it's extremely and so logical. MJ, I yeah. love it. Yes, it is very much Mary Jane, and it is very much a response to everything that these writers, this editorial team, has put her character through up to Redheaded Stranger. It only makes sense. Yeah. Of course, 
comics have to keep on going and she will be back. Now, Lisa, we're not only saying goodbye to Peter and Mary Jane, we're also finishing our time with Dr. Alexander Avila's love types. We've been teasing it over the last few episodes, but is this the week where we find out how we can use the love type system to make people fall in love with us? Yes, finally. We have spent three weeks with psychologist Dr. Avila and his book, Love Types, Discover Your Romantic Style and Find Your Soulmate, which is based on the principles of the Myers-Briggs Type Indicator Test. We figured out Peter Parker and Mary James Myers-Briggs love types. Peter is an ISFJ, a caretaker. Mary Jane is an ENFP, a social philosopher. And we've learned that, according to Dr. Avila, they're not compatible. Mwah, mwah. <laughs> now, we are in... Finally, in part four of the book, putting the love type system to work for you, where we identify and stalk our ideal love type and, using Dr. Avila's tips and tricks, seduce them and make them fall in love with us. And Brad, this system is more diabolical than we even anticipated. It sounded pretty crazy before. How's that possible? I, I mean... The chameleon could take some <laughs> lessons from Dr. Avila. This is kind of turns out to be a perfect story arc for the love types weaponized system. Yes, you get more more bees with honey, don't you? Dr. <laughs> Avila, more like Dr. Acula. Ooh. I was so proud of that pun. I wrote it into my notes. Dracula? <laughs> yeah, Dr. Acula. Yeah, I got it. Yeah, I know. I'm so proud. Okay. <laughs> So, Dr. Avila submits that if you follow his program to the letter, he can get you from complete singlehood to love and and picking out China patterns in 90 days. 90 days? He calls it a 90 days to love program. That's three months. I know. In which you follow his four action steps with 15 days to each step to identify and bag your ideal love type. All right, let's do this. Okay, so action step number one, which will happen over days one to 15. Go where your ideal love type is. So you remember last week when we went into detail about Peter, MJ, and our love types? Right. This is where we put that info to work. So the first thing you do is join a club or group that meets weekly that is likely to attract your ideal love type. Like film club, a graphic novel exactly. book club. Exactly. So if we wanted to attract an IF, ISFJ or a caretaker like Peter Parker, we may want to take cooking classes, join a co-ed softball team, maybe a church group. If we wanted to attract a Brad or an MJ, who are both ENFPs. Social the disco. Yeah, social philosophers. Dance classes. Journalism clubs. I don't know what a journalism club is, but it is <laughs> something he suggests to bag an ENFP. If you wanted to bag a one of me, an INFP, an idealistic philosopher, book clubs, arts appreciation groups, charitable charitable causes, anything that aligned with my ideals. I think one you're not going to find Peter Parker at a church club. He's busy. He, he really is kind of busy and seems kind of secular. Yeah, he doesn't. religion doesn't come up too often with uh, Peter Parker. He's not Matt Murdock. 
Right. Uh, journalism cl- classes or journalism clubs? clubs? I'm not sure what that would be. I gotta look into that. Uh, I think that's just your local paper. Right. <laughs> uh, I think you would find him over there. Oh, yeah, because he is he's, a photographer. Yeah, he's a, yeah, he's a but photog. He, but that really isn't his passion. No, it's that's not true. like he ever takes pictures just for fun. He fell bass backwards into that. Yeah, he did. So in joining these clubs or groups, you are becoming part of the environment to anybody who you might be attracted right. to. Okay. All right, that all makes sense. So your potential mate grows accustomed to you. Gradually, they'll let their guards down around you. <laughs> and like, you already have common ground but, for conversation. But, but that's not necessarily nefarious. No. We're, we haven't e- entered into chameleon-like territory just yet. That starts to happen in action step two. All right, okay. So this is day 16 to 30. Make a great first impression. So Dr. Avila gives a lot of tips for appearing more confident, such as using better posture, moving or speaking slower, and so forth. But there are three tips that really stood out to me because of their specificity and their manipulative manipulativeness. I got it. Let's, I want to so hear So the it. first one is hit and run eye contact. Whoa, okay. So what? eye contact <laughs> is the universal language of uh-huh. availability. Uh-huh. So the way you do hit and run, let's see I see you across the room. I, I'm doing it right now. And I want to tell you uh-huh. that I'm available. So I'm going to do hit and run eye contact, and you can describe it to our listener. Okay. Let's give that let's a do try. It. Let's try So it. I'm walking around, eye contact. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh she went down. Eyes went down? Yeah, eyes went eyes down, went down, down they then do came back that. up. They came, they came back, back up. up. Okay, all right, all right. So that's hit and run. So you make eye contact, break eye contact, because and then make it again. that shows that it wasn't just an accident, that first eye contact. The second eye contact proves that she's of interest. Yeah. Or that you're of interest. Exactly. Okay. I remember discovering just in my life hit and run eye contact as a young teenager. Really? I have never heard of this term before. And I've... Like as a, I remember as like a middle schooler practicing hit and run eye contact, which is so really? weird. Yeah. Oh, interesting. I don't like. I've never done it, listeners. Oh well, you should give it a go. It no. is thrilling. With you, maybe. Okay. You this, better not be hit and run eye contact no, with anybody now, else. No. Now, now I just keep my eyes to the ground yeah. like a faithful wife. <laughs> That's right. Looking at my own shoes. Eight paces behind the husband. <laughs> That's right. Um, the second tip is to display contrast to accent your individuality. So if you're at a party and everybody is speaking loudly, then you should speak softly mm. to draw people in. Or if everybody else is sitting, you should stand. Okay. Or well, if like you, you're getting to know a group and everybody tends to dress kind of trendily, uh-huh. then you try to dress classically. But, but so the first example, everyone is screaming they're in a club they're all you know they're all shouting at each other and you come in and you be like hey how's it going lisa what you how's it doing but but what happens if everybody's talking at a library and they're like i had that exact same thought hey lisa how's it going yeah no i was like that doesn't work so well in the reverse sorry for blowing out your ears listeners but this is actually a tip i would hear a lot for callback auditions, because I was a performance major. Uh-huh, uh-huh, so uh-huh. I took a lot of acting classes, did a lot of auditions for operas and the like. And it was encouraged to kind of observe all of the people at the audition 
And then think about when you're going for your callback, how you're going to contrast yourself from everybody else. Okay. And also to kind of create a brand. So dress in a way that accentuates your individuality that nobody else is going to be doing. So, right. I mean, so yeah, I've yeah, heard yeah. this before. That too. makes sense. And then the last one I think is absolutely ridiculous and it would never work on me oh, necessarily. Challenge, gauntlet thrown. But the last tip is to maneuver your space to jumpstart an interaction. And to do that, you put yourself in a place where there is high, high traffic. So uh, what do you mean? By the snack table. Oh, okay. By an entrance or exit. Uh, like on the way to so the dance you, floor or on the way to the bathroom. Hold on. So you can interact with everybody who's trying to get from one place to another. But, but does that mean you know that the, the, the person you're hunting uh, is going to go to the bathroom so you're going to hang out near their bathroom? This is more to the idea of if you're trying to get to know a bunch of people. Oh, oh, like oh, you oh, haven't oh. necessarily gotten it narrowed down to one. So you want to... Interact with the most people. So, Stand by the bathroom like a creeper and try to catch everybody who's going into the restroom. We all go to the graphic novel book club, and I'm going to hang out by the Cheeto platter. Exactly, because okay. that never looks desperate. <laughs> okay. Like I like I can't imagine. Like it reminds me of whenever you go to like a Panera or whatever. Uh-huh. And there is some, it could be dare. It, there's some oh, yeah, charity yeah, yeah, yeah. that's hanging mm -hmm. out right next to the door. Oh, that drives me crazy. I also do not, me crazy. like as an introvert, yeah. I don't want to think of, oh, I have to go to the bathroom. But to go to the bathroom, I have to go through this gauntlet of creepers yeah, that are yeah, hanging yeah, out yeah. by the bathroom to talk to me. I would rather die. Okay. All right. All right. Good tip. Good tip. Won't block your way to the bathroom, Lisa. Okay. So that's action step number two. We've made a wonderful first impression. Right. Okay, but we haven't gotten our sights zeroed into one to one specific person. We've just got a group, like a love type that we're looking for. So action step number three, days 31 to 45. So we're over halfway now. It's time to love type our potential dates. Hold on. So for the first half of this method, you haven't even like narrowed down on a person yet. And so like a month and a half, you're supposed to then narrow in and secure. I imagine there's going to be some and like overlap with these steps. Uh -huh. But I think like the time frame is just like to get you acclimated to the love type okay. system. Well, not to jump ahead to a redheaded stranger. I guess the chameleon does operate pretty darn quickly and he's fairly successful yeah. within the span of a day. He literally, yeah, exactly. He literally does the whole love type system in one day. Okay. To, I think varying success. I don't think that he's got Peter Parker nailed down as a human being in that one Michelle day. Michelle Gonzalez though. Uh, yeah. Nailed down. <laughs> Action step number three, days 31 to 45. Love typing your potential dates. So there are two approaches, one for the novice, one for the more seasoned love typer. So the first approach is the direct approach. And that's where you just straight up ask the four basic love type questions. Uh -huh. So the four uh -huh. basic love, love type questions are, I'm reading this directly from the book. One, do you tend to get more energy from your own thoughts or from other people? Two, are you more practical or more imaginative? Three, when making decisions, which do you rely on more, your head or your heart? And four, if you had a choice, 
Would you prefer a structured, scheduled lifestyle or a flexible, spontaneous one? But if you came at me with those questions, I'd think you were a crazy person and, you know, red alert would flash before my eyes. Absolutely. Though he does say that it's a bad idea to go straight like to go straight through all four questions uh, in one time. In he one does time. acknowledge he that. Do, he suggests maybe peppering these one a week, so it'll take one you week. twenty days to get. The I don't know if his uh, ninety-day system is going to work. He also says you can just tell the person, "Hey, I've been reading this book. It's called Love Types." And then just go into the questions. I prefer that, honestly. And I think some people, like, I would be interested in going, oh, cool, a quiz. I love to take a quiz. You're married, Lisa. I am. Um, Like I said, this this approach, the direct approach, is primarily for beginners to help build your facility with the love type. But he also acknowledges that there are seasoned love typers out there. So he's acknowledging that this system also doesn't always work on round one. Right, right. Because this is just getting someone to go on a, like, oh, this figuring is just out. To date one? Getting, this is right, all getting okay, to date okay. one and figuring out if this okay, person okay, is okay, ultimately okay. for you. So, for the seasoned love typer, there is the assumptive approach. With the assumptive approach, you ask indirect, open ended questions so that you can assume what their love types would be. So, one of his examples is if you received a $10 million bonus, what would you do with the money? If they would use it to innovate new art or inventions that are creative and future thinking, they're probably an N. They're probably an intuitive person. But if they say they do something sensible with it, like pay off bills, uh, buy a tract of land, Uh invest it, or use it to pamper themselves... They're probably an S. They're probably a censor. So, like, he gives, like, a list of a bajillion questions to go, like, well, if if they answer this, then they're this kind of person if they answer that. But I think that this is pretty intuitive. So, let's practice. Brad. Uh Uh Uh-huh. What is an open... Ended question that you could use to determine if someone was an introvert or an extrovert. Um, do you like going to loud music dance parties? Well, th- that doesn't work because it's not a like that. That's a yes or no question. Oh. So you have to ask an open-ended question. Uh, <laughs> um, how would you feel about attending a dance dance revolution party? Okay, I guess, I mean, that would kind of work, because if they're like, well, Dance Dance Revolution is the kind of thing I do in my basement alone, like, odds are that person is an introvert. How old am I? Like, a thousand years old? Like, do people even talk about DDR anymore? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I thought you were doing, like, an actor. Like, what is my motivation for asking this question? To get in these people's pants, Brad, what don't you understand? Uh, I'm sorry, Lisa, that's the best I could come up with. Can Can you do something with that? Oh, oh, I didn't even think about that. So, I guess you could say, like... What is your idea of an ideal evening? And if they go, oh, well, I would want to go out dancing, they're probably an extrovert. If they want to stay in, they're probably an introvert. Uh uh What is your ideal evening? All right, all right. I was getting too specific. (laughs) Yeah. I wanted to get them to the disco. You you have, well, maybe you went to like a DDR club. And so it's. I'm just trying to score Mary Jane. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Another way, another arm of the assumptive approach is just to observe the person in that social contact uh, context. That's a lot of hit and run eye contact. Uh, oh yeah, and he calls this being a love type super sleuth. So if the person you've got your eye on always is the last to leave the party, 
odds are they're an extrovert. They're a Mary Jane. If they prefer to finish one conversation topic before diverting to another one, they're probably like Peter Parker. They're probably a judger. So, But the super sleuth is the chameleon. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Okay. So we're finally on action step four, which is days 45 to 60, where you make the date. So right. you've inserted your, yourself into this person's environment. Okay. You have um, made a great first impression with your positive body language and hit and run eye contact. If you say so. You have love types this person and goes like, okay, according to Dr. Avila, this love type is ideal for me. So now it's time to make the date. So the way you make a date with someone is you gear the conversation towards your target's interests. So let's say you're at a book club and you go like, oh man, what kind of books do you like to hear? Blah, 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 read, whatever. And then they go like, uh... I love this type of book. And then you can go, hey, there's going to be a poetry reading or, you know, this author is going to be speaking at this event. We should go. Okay. So, but in between that conversation, you got to get to the bathroom to get onto Google to find all those dates for that poetry reading and all those author sightings. I would probably come with some ideas for dates in my back pocket. Okay. Got so, it, got it, got it. But that means you should already know what her answer is going to be to that question. But you'll, you'll have a pretty good idea of what her answer is going to be anyway because you've already love typed her. Okay. Okay. Right, right, right. All right. Okay. Okay, chameleon. Yeah, that's Keep right. Keep going. So then you uh, make the date and then... Yeah, that's it. Then it's that's the whole that's thing. The end. That's the end of the ninety days. Yeah, Doctor Avila also has tips for creating personal ads and online profiles to attract and bag specific love types. But we don't have time for all of that. Uh, if it is ninety days to secure a date, that's a long time. If it's ninety days to secure a love of your life, that's a very short time. Right. Uh, so I find I find that. I don't know. I find this all very um, uh, extraneous. To me, it seems like, well, it opens the door to at least dating. So if you're a person who has, like, some of this I think is pretty good advice. Like, if you're a person you're really super insecure at dating, like, go to a place where people are doing something that you like to do anyway. And odds are you're going to like some of those people. Now you have a basis for conversation because you're already in, at an activity together. My big takeaway from it is that questions are great and not enough people ask questions in daily conversation. So often you go to an event, whether it's a book club, a journalism club, a disco, <laughs> and the person you're interacting with is talking about themselves. They got a really great story they want to reveal. Rarely is the person you're talking to asking you questions. Right. So if you're asking questions, you're putting them in the spotlight. And if you're looking to secure a relationship, putting that person in a spotlight is a good thing. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And Dr. Avila doesn't even address answering questions. Mm. Like, he doesn't say, okay, well, if the The person person you're talking to asks the Mm -hmm. question back, Mm -hmm. have, like, something ready. So I think that you are drawing this person into you entirely by getting them to talk about themselves. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. So we've already touched on this a little bit, but I want to go into how we could take the love type system and pervert it so that 
it is now a system where we can track someone down and murder them uh-huh. within 90 days. Uh-huh. So let's say we want to murder Mary Jane. All we have to do is simply join any clubs or groups she's already in. She's probably in a jazzercise class or maybe she's taking an acting class. So we join that group and we become part of her environment Mm -hmm. so that her guards come down. We use, uh, we make a wonderful first impression with our uh, wonderful posture and hit and run eye contact and we're always standing by the bathroom door. And so wonderful first impression. Then we use the assumptive approach to determine her love type. Once we have her love type, we know what conversations, topics will make her fall in love with us. She tr- we gain her trust enough to go on a date or go on an outing. A few dates in, we're alone with her, and boom, we steal her face and drop her in acid. <laughs> yeah. Another thing is that Throughout this entire 60-day process, Dr. Avila encourages us to keep a chart and database of everything we've learned about the individuals and uh, like potential mates. Like a serial killer. Exactly. <laughs> uh, like He's like just a few steps away from, now let's make a post-it <laughs> with pictures on our wall, and then we're going to take big, fat red yarn. Yeah, Charlie Daying it up. Oh, God. And... Um, and, like, imagine if you are you finally pick the person who's your ideal love type and you bring them home and they stumble over your elaborate notes on everybody oh. in the club. They're going to think you're a psycho. Before you bring them home, Lisa, you put away your psycho notes. Everyone, every psycho knows that. <laughs> or, like, let's just say that a person that you're interested in mysteriously dies. Like... <laughs> and when the, the police, yeah, off. the police find your notes, <laughs> you're automatically a suspect. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. Well, you better hope that the your infatuated one is eating healthy. Yeah, oh God. So, in Redheaded Stranger, we see the chameleon using Peter's environment to try to get to the bottom of who Peter is, and then execute what he thinks will help Peter. I'll, like, I find it interesting that. The chameleon has, like, the campsite rule for these identities he's stealing. He's like, oh, well, let's leave yeah. my victim uh-huh. <laughs> better off than, I love it. than the way I found them. Yeah, yeah. Which is hilarious because, like, the day that he spends as that person is going to be the last day anybody has seen that person because he's going to move on to another identity. Yeah, he wants to leave their, their memory on an uplift. Yep. Uh, that's his justification for the evil acts that he does. Yeah, I know, I, and I think that's really interesting yeah, as I, a villain. This version of the chameleon, we're going to get into it, but I like this is my favorite version of the character. Oh yeah, yeah, really. Scary. I I, have, I don't think I've read him in anything else, or if I did, he didn't leave an impression on me. Yeah, he sh- does. He show up in the Ultimate Spider-Man comics. I think he does at some point, but I, yeah, you're right. It's been like, a while. I, I don't um, remember him. But I think a fascinating way to incorporate the love type system into this particular storyline is to try and determine if the chameleon would be better off and more accurate if he teamed up with Dr. Avila and his love type system to unlock his victim's desires. Hmm. Well, let's get into it then. Let's get into it. Okay. Okay. 
Red-Headed Stranger. As we've already said, this arc covers issues 602 through 605 of The Amazing Spider-Man, and it was written by Fred Van Lenty and Brian Reed, with illustrations by Barry Kitson, Luke Ross, Yannick Paquette, Javier Paluto, and Robert Atkins. Yikes! Yeah, three times a month, Lisa. Oh my. Uh, the general plot synopsis, as stolen from Marvel Comics' digital store, reads, The chameleon returns with a terrifying new mission that has Mayor J. Jonah Jameson squarely in his sights. Meanwhile, the anti-spider squad narrows its dragnet around the wall crawler, and Peter Parker gets a brand new job. Will it bring him closer to the newly returned Mary Jane, or push her farther away? Dun, dun, dun. It's farther away. It's farther it's, away. It's farther away. Yeah. Spoilers. Farther yeah. away. Okay. Well, there you go. Um, the Chameleon, Lisa. Yes. I guess we should start with that because those are the first few panels of the book. But you don't want to start with the little Peter Parker's POV letter I don't, plot I, synopsis? Did I even read that? Uh you should like I certainly did because there was a lot going on that I had no idea well, about. What's going on in that plot? For synopsis? example, how did J. Jonah Jameson become mayor? I don't know. It doesn't matter. He just is. And then Aunt May is now married to J. Jonah Jameson Sr. Yep. And so now J. Jonah Jameson, he's part of the fam, part yep, of Peter's yep, fam. Yep, yep, yep. I just took that as like, oh, okay, comics, let's do this. And Peter has slept with his roommate, who we don't know who she is at this point. We find out later it's Michelle. And Michelle hooked up with Peter at the wedding, at the reception of Uh, Papa Jameson and Aunt May. Very classy. Classy Uh move, uh Peter. uh Drunk. And at that same wedding, Mary Jane caught the bouquet. Yeah. If I was at that wedding, I would not want that bouquet. That bouquet, she's (laughs) cursed. (laughs) Why? Why? Uh, Well... Because we all the, know what happened to her first husband. Oh, Aunt Mays? Uh-huh. Oh, you're bringing Uncle Ben into and this? And she's been shot multiple times. Mm-hmm. Her life has been on the line. I always feel a little weird when Aunt May is... Uh, Shuffled ro- off to some old bro to well, marry? romantically involved in any way, oh, which is not fair. Oh, she's an elderly fair. lady. That's, That's not, not fair. Love at every age is beautiful, but not to a Jameson. Uh, we, not but, to a J. Jonah. But here's the thing. like In the time from... One more day to this, like after the retcon, like all of Brand New Day for that first year, so much has happened. And like, to me, it is so wacky that J. Jonah Jameson is mayor. Uh, His dad is married to Aunt May. You know, like it's it. Those are those are wild things that that we've missed out on. Maybe if you just pull out the plug of fate. Like, just, there's all kinds of fate energy bouncing all over the place and just craziness is happening. Well, I mean, I think that is, like like I was saying, that's comics. Like, that's what happens in comics is all these absurd things uh, occur. But it's it's funny to, um, since we're still basically very close in continuity from One More Day to Redheaded Stranger, it's just, like, the, the tonal change is very drastic. Clearly, when you're reading Redheaded Stranger, they're trying to have a hell of a lot more fun with Peter Parker as a character. Yeah. Meanwhile, there is also this 9-11 stuff going on. Oh, yeah. But, like, but like it, it feels like the olden days of Lee, Ditko, Romita, where it's just like, and then here's this situation, here's this situation. What happens if this person's dating that person? What happens if this person's married to that person? And what happens if your mortal enemy is you, the mayor? 
You know, right. like it is very um, wacky '60s Spidey comics, and and it's hard not to feel that it is also rather forced. Yeah. Uh, well, I guess because t- last week we talked about how the reason one more day happened was because of this idea that Peter Parker has to stay the same, which means that if Peter Parker is staying essentially the same, everything around him has to be changing constantly to keep the story moving forward. Yeah, and, you know, if you continue to read Spider-Man comics after this, when Dan Slott officially takes over as the monthly writer, like, that is the driving force, is the wacky narratives, is the insane plots around Spider-Man. And it is a little bit less of the relationshipy stuff. Like, the relationshipy stuff is mostly, you know, like, will they or won't they with Black Cat? Will they or won't they with uh, Mary Jane? Will they or won't they with... You know, X. Right. And possibly the weirdest thing to me regarding the tone of Spider-Man comics of the late aughts is how uh, the the way sexuality has uh, changed uh, or how it's presented in the aughts compared to how it was presented in the 70s and 60s. Because of the comics code. Well, because of the comics code, because, you know, like... Sexuality was starting to be introduced into comic books in the 70s and 80s uh, and then through the 90s. But once Peter Parker married Mary Jane, that was, you know, that was married sex, right? So, like... like That's God's sex. Yeah, that's God's sex. (laughs) And now, with One More Day, he's back to being the swinging bachelor. But the last time we saw him as a swinging bachelor was a long-ass time ago when you couldn't have him sleeping You can't see two his, characters tangled in the sheets. You can't see, yeah, you, you cannot see a sex scene. You can't, you can't address the fact that Peter Parker has just slept with Michelle Gonzalez, right. right? So it's fascinating to me to now have to deal with this version of a swinging Riverdale-esque Peter Parker and his supporting As opposed cast to, like, of ladies. Look at this guy. He's having fun. Courting multiple ladies. No, look at this guy. He's spreading his spe- seed like everywhere. Right. And so when you have a scene like, you know, him getting drunk at a party and having sex with Michelle and him being so dismissive to her because he it's like hate sex and he, he can't really actually stand her. It makes Peter Parker ugly in a way that he was never that never portrayed that way when he was with Mary Jane. Not that That's, we want to sex shame Peter Parker. He can have all of the sex that he wants. I'm not sex shaming but, Peter but Parker, he but he is being treat, an asshole yeah, to he, Michelle Gonzalez. Yeah, he's being a bad person. Yeah. I'm just I, saying. I'm getting I'm getting heated. I know. I know. I, I guess what I'm saying is that I was surprised at how frustrated slash hurt I was to see this version of Peter Parker on the prowl again. And maybe that's just because it highlights the fact that I really was invested in the Peter Parker and Mary Jane marriage. And that, you know, now that that's over and we've gone back to the Peter Parker of before that time, I just don't want it. Right. <laughs> and you got you I have to get over that if I'm going to continue to enjoy Spider-Man comics. And I had gotten over that. And then we read One More Day and then we followed it up with Red-Headed Stranger and it has rekindled that like fanboy outrage that happened in 2007 when Straczynski and Casada did their shenanigans. Right. 
So uh, I don't your know, IR is stoked. No, my IR is stoked. My IR is stoked. And you know, like Peter Parker, he he does some uh, uh, atrocious things as a person in this book, but. He did atrocious things when he was married to Mary Jane as well. He was not a great husband in every comic that existed within the, the time frame of their marriage. You should read some of those spectacular Spider-Man, uh, J.M. DeMatteis, and Sal Buscema comics. Whoa. <laughs> uh, so, I don't know. That's where my headspace is going into this conversation. Makes sense, Lisa? Does that sound okay? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. All right. So, uh, let's get into the chameleon We've, we've moved past the first page with the Peter POV letter. Right. And we turn this page and we get four panels of people going through the motions of security at the airport, taking their shoes off. There's a little boy being wanded. And in the narrative, there is a retrospective on all of the terrorist threats that were never acted upon that ultimately led to the bombing of the embassy in Nairobi, led to 9-11. And so... And it's all being said from the point of view of the chameleon. Right. Who has kidnapped this man, who we don't know uh, his identity just yet, this guy named Walter. Right. And he is listening to Walter's pleas and he's mimicking Walter's pleas back to him. Right. And I do feel like this captures very much the uh, the post 9/11 era where everybody is so frightened but uh I think it comes down to like one line of narrative um that is you are surrounded by listeners Guardians, watchers, there are eyes everywhere and all of them are blind. Right. And it's the perfect setup for a character like the chameleon. I understand the impulse of incorporating this particular Spider-Man rogue into a post 9-11 narrative. But man, it does still give me like the the heebie-jeebies. I think that the chameleon at least in this comic, is a fascinating character, though, because he does have this code of ethics behind what he's doing. Mm-hmm. He has this idea of proving to the powers that be that um, they're looking in all of the wrong places, that they are, in fact, powerless. Yeah, yeah. And for as uncomfortable as I am to see this post-9-11 era enter into my Spider-Man comic books, the chameleon has never been used uh, more satisfyingly. Like he fits perfectly into this terror narrative. And when we're looking at Walter and he's mimicking Walter's, you know, pleas, and the chameleon is standing on the next page in this mid splash, and he's got that face goo gun, and he's copying uh, uh, Walter, saying, you know, like stop copying me, and then he goes, stop copying me, and behind him we see all these faces of previous victims that he has mimicked. Like, that is a horror movie chameleon, and whoa, it is effective. Right, and then he drops Walter in acid. Yeah. yeah. Horrible. Yep. But then we turn the page. Back to Spidey. Phew, uh, Spidey, Spidey versus Slide in his non-friction suit. <laughs> Turns out it's a cop in there. Who knew? Um, and of course, with J. Jonah Jameson as mayor, he has a super beefed up, anti-Spidey squad. Right, right. And And how are you going to lure Spider-Man in to arrest him? You set up a bunch of fake rinky-dink supervillains to to pull off a heist. 
I, I, I thought that was a lot of fun. I think the Spider-Man dialogue is also uh, pretty on point with the character. It feels classic. I, I dig it. But Spidey doesn't allow those robot cops to slow him down. He's on his way to a job interview at J. Jonah Jameson's office because he's been perceived as, well, he has balanced the budget. He is not tough enough on terrorism, so right. they need someone to come and take some pictures of him glad-handing vets and whatnot. Right, so while Peter Parker is the perfect guy to shoot your propaganda, he is also the perfect guy for the chameleon to assimilate. Uh, and that's what the plot of Red-Headed Stranger is, at least in the beginning. Chameleon sneaking into Peter Parker's life. Uh, he does a Walter on him. Yeah, so as... Peter Parker is leaving that job interview. The man that we saw tied to the chair on that second page of this comic happens to be one of the scariest things ever, a mime <laughs> or a living statue. They're both terrifying. And so... A living statue of the Statue of Liberty. That's right. So the Statue of Liberty, her little flames of freedom. There's a needle at the end of that. The chameleon jabs Peter in the neck and he goes limp. And then his goons come and he goes in an ambulance. It's a whole thing. And the sequence we see of Peter Parker in the chair that Walter was previously sitting in plays out in the exact same fashion all the way to the point where Peter Parker gets dipped in acid. Now, with Walter, we see his bones. We see his skin deteriorate from his bones. Peter, we just see go into the same acid bath. And we're like, oh, I guess Peter Parker's dead. This is the end of Amazing Spider-Man of course, we know better. Somehow he got out, but we have to wait several issues, or at least two issues, before Peter Parker reappears in the comic book. I love Chameleon's little speech to himself after he nabs Peter Parker. He goes, now I have everything to complete my mission and teach New York it will never forget. What it's like to live in fear. I'm pretty sure New York knows what it's like to live in fear. Thank you very much, the chameleon. Now, here's the thing. The, the, the plot of the, or the antagonistic plot of this comic with chameleon integrating himself into Peter's life and not realizing that Peter is also Spider-Man, that is a plot that we have seen in this comic book in the past. Mm -hmm. But this is the first time to my recollection, where we learn that the chameleon, when he is doing this, when he is infiltrating your life, he likes to leave your life better than when he came in. And I think that is a true twist to the character. Like, it really makes him... Uh, diabolical. Diabolical, but like like this special kind of narcissistic diabolicalness, right? This, he has this justification, like, you couldn't live your life as well as I could live your life. Oh, that's good stuff. Oh, uh, yeah. There's another person trying to infiltrate Peter's life, or at least find her place in it, and that is MJ. Right. She's come back from L.A. She has turned down superstardom, and she is now doing reality television, hanging out with Aunt May, and trying to figure out, like, so I'm not Peter's fiance anymore. What are we? So right before Peter is nabbed, they had a date set up and MJ stood him up. Mm -hmm. So Peter has in the back of his mind that like, well, I guess it serves me right because I've stood up MJ because of Spider-Man reasons. 
countless times, is she giving me payback? Now he's trying to read into her actions. Yeah, and that's when he gets nabbed. That's right. And then also back in town, MJ goes to see other old friends, including Harry Osborne. He has fallen on bad times and now is living in a coffee bean. Yeah. I, I mean, the impression that I got was that he has electively pulled himself from his father's shadow. His dad is off running Hammer, which is the new version of S.H.I.E.L.D. post-Secret Invasion. He tried to get, Norman tried to get Harry to join him in that organization, and Harry said, no way, crazy dad, I'm going to be my own guy. And that's how he ended up being the guy running the coffee bean. Right, but now MJ is seeing this as an opportunity to bring the old band back together, and so she starts reaching out to Peter, going like, We need to do something about Harry. Mm, Yeah, yeah, yeah. He ends up being a tool for her to mend her awkward relationship with Peter. And of course, that's not going to go well, especially when the chameleon is Peter. Right. So she tries to call Peter on the phone. The chameleon picks up. That's the end of this issue. Mm -hmm. Cliffhanger. And then the next issue doesn't have Peter in it at all until... The literally the, like the last panel where he is punching through the acid bath. That's right. So this entire episode is chameleon in Peter's body. He has no idea that he's Spider-Man. He knows nothing about his life. He's completely baffled that Peter Parker is surrounded by beautiful women. Total babes, right? And so he's trying to read... Peter's existence. And like like I said, he's trying to better it. You know, before he infiltrates J. Jonah Jameson and does his thing, he wants to leave Peter Parker's life a little bit better. And uh, to do that, he has to mend this relationship with this weird redhead or uh, get him a little nookie with Michelle Gonzalez. And I think that, in my opinion, and you can correct me, but I feel like the chameleon... Could have used a little help from Dr. Avila because he does get some things right about Peter, but he also gets some other stuff super wrong. Explained. Starting with the very first encounter he has, he gets the phone call from Glory, who is J. Jonas Jameson's right-hand lady, her his chief of staff or whatever, and uh, he, she informs him that His old high school buddy, Flash Thompson, is also going to be at this um, photo shoot at the Shadow Command. he's just back from Afghanistan, and he's going to be a great photo op. That's right. So the chameleon in Peter's body goes like, great, good good to hear. And then he goes to um, Peter's old high school yearbook and sees that Flash Thompson has signed his yearbook calling him puny Peter. Right, yeah, this so, guy's a jerk. Yeah, and so... And I'm going to get my revenge on Flash Thompson for Peter. Yeah, clearly Peter has some beef with Flash Thompson. And so when Peter eventually goes to the Shadow Command Center, fake Peter, in my, in my notes I refer to him as C. Peter, because he's <laughs> Chameleon Peter, and he's being a total C. Uh, C. Peter goes for this photo shoot, and he sees that, War veteran Flash Thompson ain't got no legs. See, Peter is like, who's puny now, Flash Thompson? Who's puny now? And 
and then he completely ruins the photo shoot because Flash Thompson looks super pissed, as he should be, for the entire photo shoot. And I don't think it's happening at this point, but eventually Flash Thompson bonds with the Venom symbiote and becomes the new Venom. Oh, no! <laughs> and that's the chameleon's fault? No, no, no. He becomes a like a superhero version of Venom. Oh, okay. That was just bonus information, bonus <laughs> yeah. Brad information. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, thank you. So the next thing, after uh, deciding that Peter's got some beef with uh, Flash Thompson, see Peter goes out and sees Michelle, the pissed roommate, and goes like, well, clearly Peter's got some, <laughs> yeah, there's some sexual tension yeah, 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 yeah. with this woman. And uh, uh, she's all yeah. mad at him. Mm-hmm. And she is silenced by his forceful kiss. And they end up having sex on the floor of the kitchen. I think there's something really uh, like interesting about the narrative going over this sexual encounter. And that's like, he has this little monologue of how come people don't figure me out? How come people don't look at another person and go like, Hey, real Peter wouldn't do that. Who's inside Peter. And his explanation (laughs) of that is going when one person looks at another person, they're not actually seeing that other person. Uh, uh, What uh. they're seeing is their own desires superimposed Uh, uh on that other person. So, the chameleon in that moment wasn't going, how do I act like Peter? He's going, how do I give this Michelle person what she wants? Clearly, she wants some boning. But this odd behavior that Peter is ex- is expressing through the chameleon isn't that odd because of the Spider-Man persona that Peter is always hiding. Peter is always acting a little duplicitous, is always acting a little strange. So these odd behaviors aren't that odd for Peter Parker. I imagine people like Michelle, people like MJ, people like Aunt May see all manner of odd instances in this guy named Peter Parker. I didn't even think about that. Like they go like, oh, that doesn't add up. That old Peter. Yes, yes. So the next scene we should spend a little time on because now this is MJ and C. Peter having their little... Get together. And even though this is part of the contrivance of the chameleon idea, and we have seen a scene like this before in Spider-Man comics, every time a moment like this happens, I feel like squidgy, you know, because you're like, MJ, that's not Peter. And chameleon, you're not interpreting the scene, right? Because you don't understand. Like, I get all hot and bothered in a body snatcher situation like this. Not just in Spider-Man comics. When when ideas like this occur in popular fiction, it always, like, gives me, yeah, th- th- I'm going to just keep using the phrase, heebie-jeebies. But I think accidentally, the chameleon trips over some like an insecurity that MJ has about their relationship because they were in love. They were going to get married. It did not work out. They don't know it's for mystical reasons. They're both kind of shrugging their shoulders and go well, like, and why MJ didn't we work out? MJ does know that Peter is Spider-Man. Yes, she does. So, you know, she'll say things to respond to the chameleon. And he has no idea. And he has no idea that they're talking about Spider-Man in that moment. Right, right. And and that's kind of funny because they bring up like the 
the Harry Osborne apparently had some kind of press conference with his dad and uh it did not go well. It, yeah, but like see Peter goes like Spider-Man was there and she's like I'm like yeah. of course she's like I'm not keeping up with everything that Spider-Man is doing and he's like why is she so mad? <laughs> like what what is this about? But the instance that I'm talking about is Chameleon trying to do some investigating. He has a just a random photograph that he found at Peter's apartment. And so he whips it out and he goes like, I think I know why we didn't work out. I think it's because you're not her. And it's a picture of Gwen Stacy. I know. So brutal. See, and he Peter know. has he no idea know. that Gwen Stacy is his dead girlfriend. And so I think that in that moment. It's it, true. Yeah. Like Mary Jane does go like. We're all just trying to live up to the Uncle Ben's and the Gwen Stacy's yeah. of your life. We're all the exact quote is like, that's the problem with you, Peter. Gwen, Uncle Ben, the rest of us are always competing with dead people. It makes me nauseous. It's so sad. <laughs> but I like how this panel plays into her uh, overall arc. If you think about where she the, ends at the end of this comic, of her panel. going like, I don't want to be, I don't want to be Peter. I don't want to be defined by one event in my life, the event The event in Peter's life being Uncle Ben. Mm-hmm. And for her, the I'm not going to be defined by our wedding being called off. I'm, I want to live, I want to be the Mary Jane that I was planning to be before we even met. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's a really cool scene, but yeah. Ugh. But then uh, he scares off a stalker. I think that's good. I think that's good chameleon work. Uh, MJ has this um, playwright, well, screenwriter that's been stalking her, trying to get her to be in some science fiction movie. And so... The chameleon beats him down. Yeah. So I think... Okay, I'm going to put one in the pro column for the chameleon. He does a couple pro things. He does that, and he accidentally gives insight to Mary Jane about her situation with that Gwen photograph, and he does bring Harry Osborne back into the fold, back into that group, so that they can move forward. Yeah, now Harry is crashing with MJ and the Rileys, who we haven't even talked about, but they're... Brad explained it to me not on mic. They're his cousins from England? They're Peter's cousins. I don't know if they're from England. I have no idea. I thought they were from the South. They They have an accent. They have an accent. (laughs) They're their cousins. It's Aunt May's uh, sister's children. Right, but somehow are they connected to Ben Riley? Well, Ben Riley, no, no, they're not connected to Ben. Oh Riley. yeah, because Riley is May's maiden, maiden name. name. Yeah, Ben Riley is the clone, and we do meet Raptor, who is tracking the Riley cousins because he's looking for Ben Riley, who is the clone of Peter Parker. But we and don't. Harry have- is boning one of the cousins. Yeah. Not important, but just fun information yes, to yes, share. Yes. But we certainly do not have enough time to get into the clone saga, Lisa. Oh, sorry. <laughs> What's impressive is while he's uh, quote unquote helping Peter Parker, he has successfully infiltrated Jameson's organization and, and and built a dirty bomb and built a dirty bomb, and he is going to level New York City again. <laughs> Thankfully, at the end of that issue, Peter Parker punches his way out of the acid bath. He has wrapped himself in a spider cocoon, survived the toxic chemicals, and is alive. That's right. Was that a satisfying reveal for you, Lisa? 
I think that it was like it wasn't necessary. Like so, the n- next issue begins with fully explaining that. I'm like, I, like <laughs> S- Spidey sense you're strong. That's like enough, but. It really goes to, and I've been to the night nurse. My acids, like, I'm not burned hardly at all. Yeah. Everything's fine. It I'm feels like, very defensive in its writing and explanation. I, it's like as if they regretted putting the acid bath there in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, mm, was that a little far? But How's Peter going to get out of this one? Peter's out. Peter's out. He's investigating who the chameleon is. He's gone through his lair, and he's like, ah, fake faces, all that stuff. And... As he's burst out, the anti-spider squad is back on him, but Spider-Man is able to turn the anti-spidey squad onto the chameleon's plan. They contain the dirty bomb burst, and then immediately all of the cops that were on that anti-spidey squad quit, and J. Jonah Jameson is shamed because... Spider-Man is clearly a hero and way harder on terror than Mayor Jonah Jameson ever was. Jameson can't handle the facts when they're presented before him. Spider-Man is always evil. He must be evil. He must be taken down. Whereas the Spider-Cops, they go, look, we can't do this for you because clearly you were infiltrated by the chameleon. Yeah. Uh, J. Jonah Jameson turns out invented fake news. Yeah. Oh, God. Let's... That's, we're going to get a lot of that. Myself. We're going to get a lot of that in the MCU my, going forward. My heart hurts. Uh, all right. So that's pretty much the end of the chameleon storyline, right? Yeah. And then Peter goes and he's like, hey, uh, Harry's moved into uh, Aunt May's house. That's nice. Wow. Things between me and Michelle are so weird. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I'm still not happy with the whole Michelle thing. I I, I, f- I feel bad for her. I feel real bad Talk for her. Talk about, like, mixed signals. And then the next issue when that is brought up, you know, he's still living there. He's refusing to get out of her space. He knows that the chameleon has, you know, for all intents and purposes, raped her right. using his face. And he continues to treat her like garbage. He tries to explain to her the chameleon, which him being like, she doesn't know he's Spider-Man. Like, that makes like zero sense. Like, if you're going to take it to that moment, Peter, you need to go, look, I'm Spider-Man. This is what's going on. Like, he should. I know he's, we're, we're desperate for him to keep his secret identity. But after a moment like that, you got to tell Michelle. No, you got a ghost. You got a ghost. Set, like, you got to set fire to the, like... Uh, that's a bridge you should burn. There's no making this right. I think you have to, I think he has to tell her the truth. That he's Spider-Man? Yes, yes. That's ridiculous. Why? Because, like, just be, like, why should she be in the inner circle? I think that that would- Because she's just been raped by the chameleon. (laughs) She doesn't know that. (laughs) So what doesn't hurt her, uh, what she doesn't know doesn't hurt her? I'm not necessarily saying that. I'm saying that there is nothing Peter can say, including the truth, hmm. that can make this better. The most That's probably true. The most compassionate thing he can hmm. do is move the frick out of New York. Just salt the earth. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. It's 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 a scene that I almost wish we didn't have to reconcile with. Right. Right. But, oh, and also, uh, 
uh, Craven, the hunter's wife, wants to team up with the chameleon. Yeah, Calypso shows up, hires the chameleon, but this storyline's not going to address that going forward for now, the purposes of our podcast. The last issue of this book is really MJ's issue, and we get to see the thought process behind, I'm going to go, like, I'm going to accept Aunt May's invitation and attend the wedding and run back into Peter after everything that's happened. And I found this storyline to be so satisfying. Uh, this is the best issue in the entire book. Hands down. Yeah, it's illustrated by Javier Paludo, who does great work in the She-Hulk Charles Sewell series. If you haven't read that, you need to. It's brilliant. And, you know, so rarely does Mary Jane get a whole issue to herself. And I, yeah, to use your word, satisfying, I find that Fred Van Lenty takes her to the logical conclusion of her arc and you could end her appearances in Spider-Man with this comic if they would allow it. Yeah, even though, like, her conclusion is I'm going to be back in Peter's life whether he likes it or not because that is my home. Yeah, like, I'm not going to let this guy push me out of New York City, but I'm also not going to necessarily be part of his life. I'm not going to be his Gwen Stacy. Yeah, yeah. So it starts with, she's on set, she's in a pirate film. It looks like Cutthroat Island Part 2. Yeah, and she's like, I'm sick of playing the girl in a movie. I'm always the damsel in distress. This is, for her... Art imitating life. She's like, I want some kind of meaty, powerful woman role. And if I can't do that, I'm just going to play myself in a reality show because my favorite creation of my entire life is the woman that I've become is Mary Jane. Yeah, I love that. I love that. That's how we get her back to New York. Yeah. It makes sense to me. You know, it's not her giving up on her dreams. It's her realizing what she wants in life. Yeah. A lot of stuff happens in between that. Yes. And maybe the most significant moment of the entire redheaded stranger story arc occurs on the plane from the Bahamas back to Hollywood, where she's contemplating going to Aunt May's wedding or not. We get a flashback to the final conversation she had with Peter Parker dressed as Spider-Man four days after he left her at the altar. Now, What's crazy about all this is these events did happen, theoretically, because Mephisto, his magical deed was to go back in time and let this one burglar escape. And when he let that burglar escape, that led to a series of events in which Spider-Man missed his own wedding to Mary Jane. But, like, it still drives me crazy because in the original timeline, in the original reality, he did not miss that date. He would not have missed that date. But this retcon, this action says that he still allowed himself to miss the date. It's like, like it's, Mif- ah, it drives it's, me crazy. It's like Mephisto incepted him or something. And he that's planted like. that yes. memory. Uh, but he didn't. Uh, like, that's, like, if you read One Moment in Time, the One More Day sequel comic, it really comes down to all these events that, that led to this argument did happen. Peter did screw up. He did miss his wedding, but I'm with you. Like it should have been an inception moment. It should have been like only a dark magical thought could create this moment. 
And I, I dismissed the premise of the book. I know I'm not supposed to do that, but I dismissed <laughs> the premise of the brand new day. Not one more day, but brand new day. Anyway, get over yourself, Brad. Here's the argument. Let's but talk I about do the argument. think mm. that that memory of giving MJ the experience of Spider-Man letting her down one last time when it was so important to her really would shatter it manifested an insecurity for her mm-hmm, mm-hmm, it was mm-hmm. like her deep down inside she felt that peter was prioritizing yeah. spider-man over their love now they've had this experience and that and the brand new day version true. of spider-man and mary jane that is true but but it because of that circumstance she got to voice that insecurity and and her saying like being your significant other is worse than being a cop's wife mm. because because you have a secret identity. Now, I have a secret identity, and at least cop's wives have other cop's wives to talk to, and I have nobody. Mm-hmm. I have nobody. And to me, like, you think about Mary Jane. She's an extrovert. She grows through bouncing ideas off of people. And so now in this universe, Spider-Man's identity has not been revealed. Therefore, she has nobody to even marry. Does Aunt May know? No. Nobody knows. So she's just so utterly alone. Yeah. But even facing that memory... And realizing that there is a that they will never go back again, she checks yes, I will attend the wedding. Technically, of- she first checks no. If you look at the panels, she first checks oh, no. Oh, does she? Yes. I missed that. And then she goes home to see Bobby Carr. Oh, right. Yes. Her, her dreamy uh, teen heartthrob, all grown up Bobby Carr. Shooting himself up in the butt. <clears throat> because he's playing Captain America and he cannot possibly l- reach his level of athleticism. So he's taking mutant growth uh, hormone. Yeah. They don't address that in that scene. He like kind of like distracts her. It like, looks like hey, he's I've got, got this cool like he's sh- juicing himself with steroids. Right. So um, they decide to go out to celebrate. Now he's gotten this Oscar worthy role playing a dead superhero um, uh, next to putting on 50 pounds. Like, that is... This is Oscar gold. Yeah. And so while they they decide to go, go out to some star-studded affair, Bobby gets a call from the studio. I'm making quote fingers. But it's actually the DEA, because he's going to narc on whoever is giving him the MGH. And that's Alice. Yes. And what a terrifying gang. Oh, I, I love Alice. Yes, too fun. Yeah, anytime you go to Lewis Carroll for villains, you know, Mad Hatter, Alice, all all good. I'm yeah. always for it. Pro Lewis Carroll. Um then we get a whole action scene at the club where Bobby and Mary Jane are because Alice's goons come in to kill Bobby because she's learned that he is narking on on her. And Mary Jane gets to play the hero. Yes. She goes in like to where all of the models, her model friends are hanging out and she's like, stick with me. I'm a professional damsel in distress. And she throws on uh, Alice's costume and she kicks butt and she gets to be the hero. But then she sees her new boyfriend, 
with his back up against the wall with guns pointed at his mug and she has another flashback. Yeah, back to the end of that argument, the final argument between her and Peter Parker. And it's heartbreaking because the conclusion of that conversation is, you know your greatest fear? You know the fear of me prioritizing Spider-Man over you? It's true. Mm. Because he says, like, I know I've Parker told... Parker says this. Parker says, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm, I've told you... I, I was going to quit Spider-Man before. And he, what I, I love the, just, I just want to talk about the art in this moment because he pulls his mask off and Paluto's face of Parker, this beat up, bruised, battered face. Like you see the pain that Spider-Man takes on a daily basis physically. And now he's bringing that to a moment and he's like almost shielded by the wounds that he has. And it's like he's using the bruises as an excuse or not excuse, but, um, Evidence, evidence for his case. Right. Like, this is what I'm willing to take to protect this part of myself. So he goes on to say, like, I know I know I've said in the past that I, I was going to quit being Spider-Man. But then he goes on to say, truth is, when I'm honest with myself, I need Spider-Man more than anyone. Brutal. And in and that I'm- context, he means, like, more than anyone else means spy- needs Spider-Man. But would the Peter Parker pre One More Day have said that? I don't think so. I don't that's know. why I. That's why I wish it was a magical inception. And she goes on to like she's at the end of her rope, and she's like, "Cue Uncle Ben, the patron saint of Forest Hills. Cue the guilt." And she goes like. You can't let one moment define your whole life, Peter. And Peter says, maybe you're right. And it, and that is the moment where she goes, I'm letting that argument, that last argument with Peter. Yeah, keep me away from being me. Yeah, from going home. Mm-hmm. So once she is outside of the building and she's with Bobby and the cops are there, Bobby goes like, well, we have to talk because we have to get our stories straight of what we're going to tell the cops and what we're going to tell the tabloids. And she's like, what? And she and he goes on to say, like, I had no choice but to do mutant growth hormone. I am an aging teeny bopper. Nobody's going to take me seriously unless I can bulk myself up. You know what it's like. <laughs> You're a model, and your window of fame is closing. You're getting old. And she's like, what? Yeah, he's a true POS. And Bobby goes on to say, like, see, this is why my therapist told me not to tell you that I was taking this drug. Because she says that there's always tension in a relationship when one partner is so much more successful than the other. And then underneath him saying that, Uh there's just a picture of... Of Spider-Man's face. A real gut punch. And That's her, good writing. <laughs> it, you know, she's been playing the tambourine mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. Spider-Man being front and center. And she hasn't had an opportunity to... To be her. To be herself. Yeah. So the redheaded stranger story arc leaves Mary Jane in this place of empowerment. 
but Peter Parker's final story in this book is really pathetic. Yeah. This is the issue where he actually goes back to Michelle. They have their final blowout. And she's like, like, I'm trying to, like, we both agree that getting down and dirty at your Aunt May's wedding reception was a mistake. But then I try to kick you out. And then, like, you're... I'm trying to keep it without swearing. You're boning me once again. And he goes like, I know how it looks, but like there's this guy called the chameleon. And she's like, you're human garbage. And she punches him in the face, which he deserves. Yeah, I mean, he does. He does. Again, that's where he should come out and tell her the truth. That's where I stand, Lisa. Meanwhile, Harry, trying to be a good friend, is like, you know, man, I know that you guys almost got married, but... Peter, it really is time for you to just get over Mary Jane. Yeah, go find some more fish. You got to get back out there. And he does that by stopping a diamond heist, flirting with the clerk behind the counter. She makes gooey eyes with him. She does a little hit and run eye contact, oh, Lisa. Oh, yeah, that's right. And he, they, they make a date to meet back up on a rooftop and uh, he gets all excited. He goes back to Harry, says, hey, there's somebody special that I might be going out on a date with. Then he does eventually meet up with her on the rooftop and learns that she's just there to get his autograph because it would really make her boyfriend's day. <laughs> Heartbreaking. <laughs> and so redheaded stranger leaves Peter Parker where Peter Parker should be struggling in all facets of life. Romance, superhero, friendship, He's, he's a mess. And that's the Peter Parker we love. Right? I think so. You know, like, I, I, I give him a hard time in this book. I think he does some really ugly things. <laughs> you know, again, Michelle, I'm so sorry for you. Uh, but, but, you know, we, we never want Peter to be too happy for too long. Mm-hmm. And I, I think... That's what Joe Quesada was trying to get at with One More Day, was to get back to these situations where he is struggling at life like a proper Marvel comic hero. Yes. Of course, as fans, we're always going to nitpick about how we get the character back to this situation. We nitpick because we love. Sure, sure, sure. So, Lisa, uh, bring it back to Dr. Alexander Avila. What have we learned this week about... Uh, ourselves, about Peter and MJ, um, what can we apply? This is our final thought on Avila and his love types. To me, if I were to rejigger the Dr. Avila thing and take out all of the diabolical trying to ensnare a person of the correct love type, I think there is a value of knowing your true self and being that person. And if you are in the world being your true self, you will attract the kind of person who loves somebody like you. Mm. That's something I find myself telling my single friends. Like, when you go on a first date, you shouldn't change your behavior. You shouldn't try to put on airs to impress someone, you should be yourself harder than you've ever been because you're trying to not find a person you can trap 
on a date, you're going to try to find someone who loves you. And that's why I think Peter and MJ, even with this little Mephisto snafu, they're going to end up back together and better for it because we know from what Mephisto told Mary Jane and Peter before they he dissolved their relationship like their love was the kind of love that God himself put up on a pedestal cosmically pure their love was the truest which is why he wanted to besmirch it and right? it's right and it's why Mary Jane said to to Mephisto, no matter what you do, and he, she actually said this to Peter, no matter what he does, we're going to get back together eventually. So now, because of that argument they had when Peter showed up four days late for their wedding, now that insecurity, that demon of Peter loves Spider-Man more than he loves me is out in the open, it can be addressed. She, because of that argument, she goes, I want to, I don't want to be some model. I don't want to be a damsel in distress in a movie. I want to be Mary Jane and I want to celebrate Mary Jane. Peter, he's going to have his foibles. He's going to make his mistakes, but we, he's our hero. We know he ultimately means the best for the world and hopefully the best for himself. And so when they start being their true selves, they'll eventually be pulled back together as God with a capital G intended. <laughs> I have a couple thoughts uh, about Avila and love types. I see a lot of what he has described in his book, to be similar to what Gary Chapman described in the five love languages, the relationship book that launched this entire podcast. Right. Uh, and probably the relationship book that I think about the most. It is about understanding that partner you're with and knowing what actions you do, how they affect your partner. And it's about knowing what your partner wants and needs and fulfilling those desires. But the big difference between Chapman and the five love languages is with that, you're already in, a, in an established relationship. Yes. So and it's this is more a about, thing. yeah, it's more but, like love the but, one you're but with. What I'm saying is that uh, they both have this idea of looking out and reading your partner. You have to be intuitive. You have to understand the person across from you. Right, but you know the best way to intuit what your partner really wants, right? Is to communicate and ask them questions. Yeah, just freaking ask. Yeah, talk to them. Communication, communication. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Now, on the Mary Jane and Peter Parker side, you are definitely like, they belong together. You want them together. You don't want Peter with anybody else. You don't want Mary Jane with anybody else. To me, Even though Mary Jane has reached a place where she doesn't need Peter at the end of Redheaded Stranger. If one more day is canon, Mm -hmm. then it has to happen. Otherwise, like, otherwise the story doesn't work anymore. We've talked about this off air. We've talked a lot about one more day. 
we ended last week's episodes big fans of that story, but you can't just leave it hanging out there. And One Moment in Time was not a satisfying sequel to what went down in One More Day. If Lisa and I were given the blessed opportunity to write the Amazing Spider-Man comic book, we would address One More Day. Our comic would be One More Day Part 2, because I like even though Mary Jane and Peter Parker are coming together in Nick Spencer and Ryan Otley's uh, The Amazing Spider-Man right now, if they just come back together and they date and, you know, uh, you know, they get engaged and they eventually marry, you can't not address this shattering magical moment, this demonic incursion. Here's how I would do it if I may be so bold. Mephisto talked about changing the timeline by mm-hmm. removing a stitch. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But you know what happens when you move, remove a stitch from a garment, everything around the garment starts falling apart. It unravels. Exactly. So I say they're dating, they eventually get engaged, and then they have this eerie sense of, We've been there before. They go to Doctor Strange going like something's going on. He reads their aura or whatever. And he goes like, oh, my God, there's a stitch missing. Mm -hmm. And that's how you bring Mephisto back. So I'm not fully up to date on Friendly Neighborhood Spider-Man as it's being published month to month, written by Tom Taylor. I just read the first volume of that paperback. There is a moment when Peter and MJ have gotten back together Aunt May has cancer now. Oh, snap. And in that trade paperback, Spider-Man does have an exchange with Doctor Strange, and there is a slight reference to Mephisto. I do not think they're doing what you want them to do. No. But I agree. They totally should. And then they go, well, do we want to repair this stitch and have the marriage that we had back then in that alternate timeline? Or do we want to leave it as is and have a marriage now yeah. as the people that we are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They yeah. decide to get married now. No more no more retcons. And then we can just go on from that point. And the thing is, for me, and I believe Lisa agrees with me, single Peter Parker is no longer interesting after that marriage. And there are so few married couples in pop culture that are succeeding. In the Marvel Universe, it's what? Reed and Sue? The end? Right. I'm sure there are other examples, but, uh, you know, like Luke Cage and, and Jessica Jones, although that's Hawkeye. Hawkeye. Well, that's in the MCU. I don't think Hawkeye has that kind of uh, oh, sorry. relationship in the comics. But, like, there are just so few stable married couples kicking butt. And that's what I want for Peter Parker and Mary Jane. And, you know, Mary Jane's getting her own spinoff comic book series in a couple months, The Amazing Mary Jane. I'm curious to see where that goes. Uh, I, I do think she's a character that is interesting, but her interest has always been so closely associated with Spider-Man mm-hmm. that she, it's hard for her to break out of the shadow of Spider-Man's girlfriend. Brian Michael Bendis did a little work on that when he introduced her into Stark Industries with his Iron Man title. I Because I've fallen for Mary Jane in the context of Spider-Man, I now want her to exist outside of being just a girlfriend. Right. And as a power couple, I think she could still be Spider-Man's wife 
and a totally interesting, unique individual. Does of that, course. Right? Because, yes, of course. Of yeah, course. Of course. I, I, Brad mansplains that to his wife. <laughs> <laughs> Women are people, too. <laughs> God of an idiot. Uh, thank you for being married to me, Lisa. I, I love it. Okay, good, good, good. Since we're going to stay married and the CBCC podcast is going to continue to exist, we need to move on to another comic book and another couple. Where are we going next, Brad? After a few months of Aquaman and Spider-Man, we need a break from the big two comic book companies and spandex heroes in general. <laughs> We've received a few requests to cover this particular couple, and while I've dipped my toe into the series in the past, I've never actually gotten beyond the first five issues. We're talking about John and Susie as seen in Sex Criminals, published by Image Comics, written by Matt Fraction and illustrated by Chip Zdarsky. It's a pleasant story about a couple of fornicators who discover a unique ability to freeze time whenever they dance the horizontal tango. Yeah. Um, what do they do with this power? They rob banks. Naturally. Naturally. I also started reading this comic book at a certain point. And you gave up on it as well. I did. Do you know why? I was like, oops. I'm a prude. <laughs> you were scandalized? I was scandalized by it, and I had to stop reading it. Well, this is going to be a, a, an exciting and tantalizing month of sex criminals. But Mom, I got to read this sex book. <laughs> it's for the podcast. <laughs> uh, but Lisa, uh, who's going to be our relationship guru for these deviants, John and Susie? It is the TED Talk famous psychotherapist, love guru, international superstar, Esther Perel. And her book, Mating in Captivity. I've heard of this book. Me too. Um, I remember it from our working at the Barnes and Noble days. Yes, This yes. book came out in 2006. Super popular. And I started reading it last night. I've only gotten through the introduction. But what it seems to be about is reconciling the, in some cases... Mutually exclusive needs for both security and eroticism from one partner. This will be a month of hot, hot, hot. Yeah, just stay tuned while I scandalize myself. <laughs> okay, Brad, mm. the time has come for us to wall crawl the heck out of here. Where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? You can find me on all social medias at MouthDork. Please head on over to the Adventures in Poor Taste blog. Read our two articles on Scott and Jean, as well as Peter and Mary Jane. Please. Yes. Lisa, how mm -hmm. about you, though? Where can our listeners find you? I am always accepting words of affirmation at Sidewalk Siren on Instagram and Twitter and you can commit to this podcast by following us on Instagram and Twitter at CBCC Podcast, subscribing to us on Podbean, Spotify, and iTunes. And hey, while you're on iTunes, why not give us the gift of five stars? We'd really appreciate it. Yeah, do that. So until next time, guys, keep your love tank full. And your psychic rapport... Open. Doopy doopy.